When I was doing my A-levels, uh, I, wanted to, I was thinking about going to Leeds University uh, to do geography, primarily because uh, I was a big Leeds United supporter and uh, I uh, wanted to go to Ellen Road every week <clears throat> and support the Leeds. And um, to get into Leeds, they accepted something called general studies as an A-level. And I thought that would be quite an easy way of getting an A-level. And, uh, and basically, general studies is it's a multiple choice. It's, you don't have to revise for it, which appealed to me. <clears throat> so, so I thought I would do general studies. Unfortunately, it didn't go very well, because you have to have a bit of general knowledge to be able to do general studies. And I remember one of the questions uh, was a multiple choice uh, question, and the question was, who wrote the Brandenburg Concertos? Now, some of you will immediately know the answer to that. I didn't know the answer to that. I foolishly assumed that it was a trick question. <clears throat> because one of the answers was Brandenburg. <laughs> Only to find out very foolishly afterwards that the Brandenburg concertos were written by Johann Sebastian Bach. Now I, now I know that. I've never forgotten that fact ever since. If I did general studies now, I might get a bit, a bit more than a D. Johann Sebastian Bach was born in the, was in the 17th and 18th centuries, and by the age of 10, both, both of his parents had died. He was incredibly gifted musically. He decided as a young man that he was going to write music for the glory of God. And he wrote in his lifetime over 1,000 cantatas, choral pieces, and musical pieces. And at the beginning, at the start of every authentic manuscript is apparently the letters JJ. And at the end of each manuscript are the letters SDG. And those, uh, those represented, uh, it, was, it was Latin words, and the first was Jesus Java, Jesus help me. And at the end of uh, every manuscript, he wrote the letters S, D, G, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God. He wrote a multitude, hundreds of musical pieces, all for the glory of God. The proverb we've just read says that a king's glory is seen in a multitude of people, not in a multitude of musical pieces. This proverb over the years has become one of my favorite proverbs. God stirred something in me the first time I read it, the first time I understood what it was saying. I've never preached on it. I've never heard anyone else preach on it. So here goes. Proverbs like this can be understood at several levels. At their simplest, they record something of the wisdom of the day and they give insight of the culture in which the writer uh, was living at the time he wrote the proverb. The proverbs, I want you to know that proverbs aren't exclusive to the Bible. As similar sayings can be found in other uh, non-biblical sources from around the same time. Yet these proverbs can impart wisdom into our everyday lives. 
And from next week, as Rob was talking about, we're going to be starting our new series looking at the book of Proverbs over uh, the next three or four months through to the middle of July. And we're going to be, the the title of the series is called Living Well. And the Proverbs uh, will help us to live well in these days. You see, as you look into the book of Proverbs, and uh, that will, this will come out in the next couple of weeks, we will find that, uh, that wisdom, it, uh, Proverbs talks about wisdom personified, talks about it as if Proverbs was a person that you could talk to and interact with, and that sort of literary tool is still used today. And yet, there is a much deeper application You see, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is the Word of God. Paul literally tells us that Christ is the wisdom of God. And that when Jesus spoke, he only said what God was saying. And so when we see Jesus uh, being assailed by the religious leaders of the day, as we read through the Gospels, we read about Jesus uh, in the book Uh, uh, in the book of uh, Matthew, some of the religious leaders come to him and they try to trap him. And uh, they say, who should we, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And uh, Jesus knows that they're trying to trap him, that it's a trick question. They've given him a bit of flattery before. We know you're wise and we we know that you don't uh, give in to flattery. So, So Jesus, should we do that? And he knows that if he says that they shouldn't, give, uh, they shouldn't give their taxes to Caesar, that the Roman authorities will be furious and that will be used against him. And yet if he says that they should give to the Roman authorities, should give their taxes, he knows that the people are being, uh, are being suppressed by the Romans and the, the Romans are, are, are bleeding them dry financially. And so he knows that this is a no-win answer. And yet in the moment, Jesus speaks the wisdom of God. And he says those words which most people today have heard, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Brilliant. The wisdom of God. Secular commentators still consider Jesus' words as some of the greatest words ever spoken. You see, the wisdom contained in the Bible finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 14.28 doesn't at, at surface level seem much of a proverb. You're not much of a king if you've got no people to rule over, are you? And yet I believe this proverb is hugely encouraging for us as Hope Church in 2015. Why? Very simply, Jesus is the king of glory. God has given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And Jesus' glory will be ultimately demonstrated to every power and principality by millions upon millions of people who have been saved by God's redeeming love expressed in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. 
Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 puts it like this. At the end of time, John says, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. That's Jesus. All will worship and sing, he says in Revelation chapter 5. They'll sing this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This morning, I want to focus on four things that I believe underlie this magnificent proverb. I believe it's going to encourage us, I believe it's going to inspire us as we look forward to all that 2015 has for us and all that God wants to do amongst us as individuals and as a church. The first thing is this. Growth is a God idea. A number of years ago, I went to Israel and I went to Masada, which was Herod the Great's palace. And if you know your history, you know what happened there. And as they've done excavations at Masada, which overlooks the Dead Sea, they uh, found a, a seed. They found seeds in the ground, and they managed to get one of these seeds, which was 2,000 years old. They took this seed, and it germinated in 2005. And the date plant tree is now it's called Methuselah. 2,000 years in the ground, yet there was something in this seed that when it came out of the ground and it was put in the right place and they were able to germinate it and it grew into a plant. 2,000 years, there was something in it that caused it to grow. Amazing. What an amazing world we live in. Without exception, we expect living organisms to grow, whether it be children whether it be plants in the garden, whether it be our waist size after Christmas. Is your waist size grown after Christmas? Unfortunately, mine did. All the talk at the moment is of the economy returning to growth. Growth is literally as old as time because growth is a God idea. It's inherent in every living thing that God has created as well as in the universe that he's made. In the opening chapter of Genesis, God speaks to Adam and he says this to him, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God expected the human race to grow. He expected there to be growth. Right from the beginning, God's plan was that the human race would fill the earth and subdue it. God's plan was that every seed would reproduce of itself uh, by propagation. The evidence is all around us in the world that we live in. And yet there's more than this. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man. the, The Bible says that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. God came to a man called Abraham in Mesopotamia. And he appears to him and he says this to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. You see, God's plan after men and women, after Adam and Eve had turned against God, had rebelled against him and the human race had turned its back on the God who made them. 
God's plan was to create a people, bring back a people who would love him for who he was. And so he comes to this guy Abraham and he, out of this one man he wants to create a new people, a people who will follow him. The Bible says in Romans 4 that Abraham is the father of all who believe. In Galatians, Paul says this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You see, the story of the Bible is how God brings about a people set apart for himself. What we now call the church. A people who've come into relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, which we've been magnificently singing about this morning. Jesus has made it possible for us to have a relationship with God through his death on the cross on our behalf. Growth is a God idea. Jesus said that his father was a gardener in John chapter 15. The point he was making is that in all that God does, he's looking for growth. Even when it feels like he is disciplining us or pruning us, it's because he wants us to grow healthily. God is committed to growing his church. The the psalmist tells us that unless God is at work, the church won't grow. He says this in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. We can do everything to facilitate growth, but it's God who gives it. What about you? What about you at the start of 2015? Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel that you haven't been growing for some time. Maybe you feel that this last year or so, you feel like you've been pruned. Maybe you feel that you've been cut back a bit. Well, God wants you to know it's for your good and it's for growth. Maybe you know that you've grown a bit, but there's so much further for you to go. And it's daunting. God wants you to know he is going to grow you this year because growth is a God idea. God is going to grow his church. He will grow his church. Because the second point is this, is that God's kingdom is an ever-increasing kingdom. Most of you will have heard of Albert Einstein. He was a brilliant physicist. He developed the theory of relativity and he concluded that the universe was static. His theory included a cosmological constant called lambda. That's probably one of the few things that I remember from my A-level physics because I didn't do very well in that either. But Einstein eventually described this cosmological constant as his greatest mistake. Because in 1929, the Hubble telescope proved that the universe wasn't static, but that the universe was expanding. Scientists now believe that the universe is expanding at at an increasing rate. I want to tell you, that shouldn't surprise us. Because the Bible says that God's kingdom is an ever-increasing kingdom. I'm going to refer to two 
bits of the Bible, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel has been exiled to Babylon. And uh, the king of Babylon is a guy called Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon is the Babylonian Empire rules the known world. And Daniel, as a young man, is in the court of the king. And Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream. Have you ever had a disturbing dream? I mean, when we were first married, Annette used to have some disturbing dreams. They were really disturbing. There was, I remember one, and... Um, okay, I'm not allowed to go there. I'm in, I'm in deep trouble if I... But she used to have some disturbing dreams, and she would tell me, Steve, I, in a dream last night, this is what I saw. And I'd be thinking, oh, my word. I don't understand that. That's... that's that sounds crazy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream. He couldn't see. He woke, wakes up and he can remember what he's dreamt about. He can remember exactly what he's dreamt about. And uh, he can't find anyone to interpret it. And it's really disturbed him in his spirit. And so he asks around and they say, there's a young man here who can help you, who can interpret dreams. And so Daniel comes to him and he tells him what the dream is. And, and his dream is that he's seen this statue standing in the place, this gigantic, awesome statue. And the head of this statue is of gold. And the, the shoulders and arms are of silver. Chest and arms are of silver. The stomach and thighs are of bronze. The legs are of iron and the feet are of a mixture of iron and clay. And in his dream, the king sees this statue, but he sees this rock being cut out of the ground, not by human hands. And he sees this rock come and it smashes the statue and the statue dissipates the dust and is blown away. But this rock grows and grows and grows, increasingly grows. And he's really perturbed by it. And he tells Daniel, and Daniel interprets the dream. God helps Daniel interpret the dream. And and, uh, Daniel says, what God is saying to you, Nebuchadnezzar, is this statue stands for the kingdoms of the earth. The golden head is your kingdom, the Babylonian empire. But that is going to be replaced and subsumed by uh, uh, by the Medes and Persians. And then that's going to be uh, taken over by the Greeks. And then the Romans are going to come. But eventually, God is going to raise up his kingdom and his kingdom is going to crush all the others to dust and they will disappear. But God's kingdom will grow and grow and grow until it fills the earth. Daniel says this, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will, itself, it will itself endure forever. Jesus in the New Testament tells a parable of a mustard seed. And he said the must, this mustard seed represents God's kingdom because it's the smallest seed. And yet this smallest seed, when planted in a garden, it grows and grows until it becomes the biggest plant in the garden and it becomes a haven for all sorts of wildlife. He says that is what God's kingdom is like. It starts small but grows big. You see, the kingdom of God had a seemingly insignificant beginning. A baby, 
born in a cattle manger with questionable parentage. For 30 years, this man, Jesus, apparently did nothing worthy of comment. He became a very public figure for three years in the backwaters of the Roman Empire before he's crucified cruelly on a Roman cross. He left behind 120, well, around about 120 devoted followers who were convinced that he had risen from the dead and he was the saviour of the world. Those followers, once filled with the Holy Spirit, become the beginning of what we now know as Jesus' church. All who genuinely follow Jesus are part of that church today. From this mustard seed of a beginning, the church has grown and grown, slowly, gradually, insignificantly on occasions, sometimes seemingly making huge advances, only to apparently disappear into obscurity. Yet bit by bit, little by little, God's kingdom has been advancing, outliving and outlasting every other human kingdom. Governments, ideologies, religions, churches or people, they all suffer the same fate. But God's church in the, goes on and on. It may look like in the UK that God's church is diminishing and dwindling. But I want to tell you this, that across the world today, there are tens of thousands of people becoming followers of Jesus Christ every day. God's church is advancing. Ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, this isn't a conquest of power and of domination. This is a victory of love, mercy and grace. You see, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw stood in the way of what God wanted to do. The Bible calls such things idols. God doesn't want there to be idols in our life, doesn't want there to be idols in our nation. What's standing in the way of what God wants to do in your life this year? Money? Self-centeredness? Fear? Love of work? What is it that's stopping you being all that God wants you to be, growing in the way that God wants you to? God wants to smash it out of the way so that you can know him better. That's why as a church we've been talking about changing culture. We want the culture of the church here to increasingly be a grace-filled culture. We want Jesus Christ to be exalted here in this church. That's why when we talk about Proverbs, when we talk, about, talk through Proverbs in the coming months, Jesus Christ is going to be at the center of what we talk about because it finds its fulfillment in him. It doesn't mean that we're going to be, every proverb we're going to be uh, relating to Jesus, but Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. We want Jesus to be the the very culture of this church, the love for Jesus. We love the word of God. We love the presence of God's spirit. If we're going to be all that God wants us to be, if we're going to grow in the way that God wants us to be, we need to get our culture right. We need to be worshippers of Jesus Christ. 
We're not to be a church who is politically correct. We're a church who believes and teaches the truth, what God says in his word. We're to be a people who love community, love community, love the community of God's people. We are the church, God's people. We're to love those around us. We're to bring community wherever we go. God's love wherever we go, whether it be in work or at home. And we're to be those who communicate the gospel. Because God's kingdom is an ever-increasing kingdom. Thirdly, God doesn't care about numbers, but he does care about people. Sometimes as a church leader, when you go into meetings with other church leaders, they can be a bit of a nightmare. Because what happens sometimes, they all too often can end up in comparison of church size. So how big are you? How many people do you gather on a Sunday? And you can go into a meet, you can leave a meeting discouraged because you can talk about, oh, our Christmas, we had 700 people at our carol service. And you're thinking, we didn't have 700. Oh no, that's terrible. And you go away and you can, you can feel as a church leader, you can feel depressed, you can go away from meetings depressed because you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on human uh, measures, on numbers. You see, this world focuses on success. We live in a very consumerist culture. And so uh, loyalty and commitment mean very little. And so people will go wherever there is something, uh, uh, maybe a charismatic preacher, and they can gather a big number of people. And literally, all that's happening is they're being drawn from other churches. That's what happens. That's, that's what can happen. That's not really good. That's just moving the chairs around. It's like moving deck chairs on the Titanic. There's no growth there at all. We need to know that God's church is to be countercultural. We're not those who look and uh, measure the way the world does. Maybe you came in this morning. Maybe you've got little children, okay? And uh, you come as a couple, and uh, one of you spends the whole meeting, uh, the first part of the meeting during the worship. All you're doing is looking after your children. And you can, you can feel in moments like that, What's the point? I may as well not bother being in church. I may as well be at home. I want to tell you, you are being counter-cultural when you come in because the world will tell you you're wasting your time. I want to tell you, you are sowing a seed into your little ones. Okay? In that moment, you may not feel that you've engaged at all, but God wants you to know you are sowing something into your little one that is for their future. You are sowing a seed that will have an impact in their lives because that little one will grow up knowing that they come to church, that when there's worship happening, they will feel comfortable with it. We live in a world where there are so many children who don't have fathers. They grow up without fathers and they don't know the presence of a father and it has a massive impact on their lives in the way that they grow up. It's true, isn't it? When you bring your child and when you're carrying your little one and when you're worshipping God and when you're helping them maybe just do some colouring or whatever and the worship's going on, something is soaking into their spirits. Because we are God's people. 
We're not interested in the way the world measures success. We are countercultural. You see, the, the Bible term is not success, it's fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Jesus says we are expected to bear much fruit. And the, the Bible talks about fruit in terms of people coming to faith, people who don't know Jesus coming to know him, people growing in godly character, people doing kind things. All of those things are fruit, fruitfulness. I read a passage just before Christmas that I've read many, many times. But I want to tell you, I've never really appreciated it. It's the beginning of John chapter 4. This is what it says. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus is seemingly having success. The religious leaders say, oh, wow, he's successful. He's baptizing more people than John. Wow, this is the one. He's really being successful. When Jesus hears it, what does he do? He walks away. Jesus walks away from what the world views as success. He walks away because he's not interested in the world's measure. He's not interested in being flattered by the world. And Jesus walks away and he goes to Samaria. He goes to the place that the religious leaders would have hated. Because Jews and Samaritans, there was, there was strife, enmity between them. Jesus goes to a well in Samaria. He's tired, he's hungry, his disciples have gone to get some food from the village and he's sitting by a well and a woman comes out. Not any woman, a woman with a checkered past. And Jesus starts up a conversation with her. And as a result of that conversation, this woman comes to know the living God. And she runs back into her community and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And the whole community is impacted in this moment. Jesus walks away from what the world considers success and goes and is incredibly fruitful. And a whole community is changed as a result of it. What about us? What's our yardstick? Is it numbers? Maybe we think, oh, it's, a, it's about being faithful, Steve. It's about being faithful, just being a faithful little remnant. That's how churches used to talk. Oh, it doesn't matter if it's small and faithful. and It's not like that. That is, that is not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about faithfulness, but it talks about faithfulness and faithfulness being linked to fruitfulness. You read the parable of the talents. It must be fruitfulness. God wants us to be fruitful. God wants you to know that you have been fruitful as a church. He wants you to know we've been fruitful. We have... God has used us to plant out Life Church in Southampton. 150, 160 gathering in Southampton this afternoon. Junction Church in Eastleigh, which we planted out in the last five years. 
Getting on for 100 people, gathering on a Sunday. Dave and Amber doing a fantastic job. We sowed them out from here and they are bearing fruit. We sent a number of people down to Bridport. Last year we baptized. Those of you who remember the baptisms at the end of the year. There were some fantastic testimonies of students who'd come to faith in the last year. Put their trust in Jesus. Beautiful testimonies about how God had changed them, broken into their lives. People with no church background being impacted. We've seen people growing in God. Phil's testimony this morning about what God did in him, been doing him in him over these years through freedom in Christ. Numbers of people being impacted, growing in their faith. In the soup service, just reaching out to people on the streets on a Thursday night. At Christmas, the Christmas meal they had, there were 60 people, a number of people in there as well who were serving and, and caring for them. There were 60 people I walked through. There was a, such a buzz. I just thought I was so proud of the people who give themselves every Thursday night, rain, wind, snow, cold. They're out there serving soup to people who are less fortunate. The farmer's market, out this morning, serving out there, giving people cups of tea and coffee, looking for an opportunity just to chat to them and show them in a practical way the love of God. The ark on a Friday, mums and toddlers group, many mums coming in here into this building for the first time. And we just want to demonstrate to them that God loves them. All sorts of other things we've Our youth work, our children's work, starting a Christians Against Poverty debt centre, street pastors, some of you involved in street pastors, caring for people out on Friday and Saturday nights on the streets of Winchester. There's a couple who've uh, been with us for a a while. They've just uh, gone off to Germany. And Louis and Vanessa... We're talking about how they have been so blessed. They have traveled all around the world. They've been to many churches. But they, they were saying, I wasn't there, but they were saying uh, to, to, to friends on New Year's Eve, we have been impacted so much by being in this church, by the care of people. As Vanessa has, uh, has been going through chemotherapy and people have cared for her and taken her into hospital to her appointments and looked after her. We have grown as a church. God has been growing us and stretching us. And yet God isn't finished with us yet. God has so much more that he wants to do in you and he wants to do in me and he wants to do in the church. Maybe you've been going through difficult times. I want you to know that you can be fruitful even in the midst of difficult times. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Do you feel like that outwardly everything's falling apart? Everything's dissipating? Paul says this, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In the midst of difficult times, in the the midst of when things are going wrong and your world seems to be falling apart... If you keep looking to God, if you keep trusting him, if you keep holding on to his hand in the midst of those times, God will grow you. 
God will use your situation and turn it for good because that's what his word promises. All things work together for good to those who love God. Hallelujah. God doesn't care about numbers, but he does care about people. Finally, and very quickly, God will be glorified. God has always dwelt in glory and will always dwell in glory. God's glory is who he is. Moses asked God to show him his glory in the book of Exodus. And then God passes by, agrees to pass by Moses. Moses isn't able to look at, uh, at his face. He's got to turn his head away. But as he goes past, God declares this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That is who God is. That is God's glory. God's glory is who he is. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. God's desire is that we declare his glory. We declare who he is to this world around. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, What is the chief end of man? And it answers this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God wants us to be a people who glorify him, but don't do it with miserable faces, as if it's hard work. God wants us to glorify him and to enjoy him, to enjoy being his children. God doesn't need more glory. God is totally satisfied in who he is. God wants to be glorified because he wants to share his glory with us and because he loves us. Let me read you a couple of verses as we come to a close. Romans chapter 9. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us. God has prepared us for glory. Amazing. This is what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. God has prepared us for glory. God's plan and God's intention, declared intention, is that many sons will come to glory. Hallelujah. Growth is a God idea. He wants you to grow this year. He wants you to grow like you've never grown before. He wants to stretch you. He wants to prune you. He wants to shape you. He wants you to be more like Jesus than you ever dreamed was possible. God's kingdom grows. 
He wants you to believe it. He wants you, when you get up in the morning, to get up with a thought in your head. What is God going to do today? What new things is God going to do today? How is God going to use me today? What opportunity is God going to give me today? He wants you to get up with faith and expectation that his kingdom will grow through you. God's not interested in human measures of success. He's interested in people. He's interested in the people you work with, the people in the street you live in. He's interested in your family. He's interested in the, the difficult people you find hard to get along with. God loves people. God's desire is that none perish and all come to know him. God wants to bring many sons to glory. I came across this quote about this proverb. I came about it after I'd pretty much decided what I was going to say. Listen to this. Solitary splendor is self-extinguishing. What good is a king with no subjects, a chief with no braves, a teacher with no pupils, a pastor with no church, a father with no children? When the king of the Jews hung on the cross, many thought him a king with no kingdom and no subjects. The soldiers delighted in hailing him king with great mockery. Yet since that time, his kingdom has grown and grown. Starting as a grain of a mustard seed, it has become a great tree. Originally a small stone, it is now a mountain that fills the whole earth. The subjects of God's kingdom live for his glory. Let's lift our eyes with faith for this coming year. A large population is a king's glory. God wants us to be more fruitful. He wants us as a church to be more fruitful. He wants us to be people impacted by him for the glory of God. He wants the manuscript of our lives to have written at the end S-D-G. Soli Dei Gloria, for the glory of God.